The contents and views expressed by individuals in this podcast are not necessarily those of the companies for which they work. Due to the coronavirus lockdown, the CIM podcast is currently being recorded via web conferencing. We apologise for any issues with the audio. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the first of the CIM podcast to be done virtually, remotely, via uh, a popular uh, web conferencing brand. Um, with me today is uh, Morag Kudderford-Jones, who is editor of Catalyst, at her home, socially distancing in Berkshire. Morag, how are you? I'm very well, Ben. Thank you very much. How are you? Yes, I'm not too bad. I think after two or three weeks of this, uh, you do start to get used to it and life goes on, you find. I, f- I find life goes on. I'm finding it very interesting because um, I don't know about you, but working from home and working remotely is is mostly what I do. And yet, even though this is the normal for me most of the time, I'm still finding it quite tricky to adjust. I think the difference is between, I mean, I work from home sort of 60 or 70% of the time. I, I did work from home 60 or 70% of the time before the, the virus uh, arrived. But I think the difference between working at home 60% of the time and working at home 100% of the time is actually a gigantic difference. It's a big difference psychologically, but also I think if you look about how we work when we're working from home, we definitely parcel out the things we do remotely versus the things we know we want to do face to face. And now we're forced to do, of course, all of it remotely. We're trying to navigate that new normal. It's that it's that 30% that we would you know, make the effort to commute into a city or go to a conference centre. And that's the tricky bit to repurpose. Anyone can do some typing from home. It's figuring out the more intricate bits like, I don't know, recording a podcast when you're 60 miles apart. Well, this is it. Exactly. And uh, talking about repurposing, the Catalyst front cover is beautiful front cover members will be receiving them in the next day or two emblazoned with a Japanese flag saying right on target brands shoot for glory at Tokyo 2020 it's dated a little bit hasn't it that well like Ken Bruce is fond of saying on BBC Radio 2's Popmaster just one year out exactly exactly <laughs> exactly but yes we've, we've been given a little bit of an extension on our essays haven't we for this yeah. event we have indeed. We have indeed. Um, I, I think that uh, just to clarify with our audience, as you and I both know, because we're from the same industry, one of the occupational hazards in the normal times is with print uh, is that you can sometimes be superseded by events, particularly on the quarterly magazine. But actually, do you think that the delay to the Olympics taking place will damage or undermine any of the messages in this piece, this feature? I think the messages will stay very relevant. I think the challenge that brands and readers of this article are going to face will be in maintaining the momentum and also finding the opportunities that they now have in this 12 month delay. You use this phrase that we've got an extra 12 months on our essay. What are, yeah. the, what are the steps that the brands can take, do you think, to use that 12 months to actually make it better than what they were gonna get in the first place? Well, so for a start, like anyone faced with a deadline, you think you've got loads of time and then suddenly the deadline's upon you and you have to make decisions, you have to make compromises. Now is definitely the time to revisit those decisions and go, where did we make a compromise based on time? And where did we make a compromise based on budget? Uh, The latter, there's not a lot you can do about, particularly in this climate. But Mm -hmm. the former, 
I think you can certainly go, well, hey, we've been, we've been handed an opportunity, what can we do with this? Um, there are also, if you look at some of the brands in that piece, these are brands that are clearly right now experiencing significant challenges. Two that come to mind particularly are Airbnb. We're talking about in the article about how Airbnb is a travel partner. Yeah. And also Purple Bricks, the online estate agency, is actually the sponsor of Team GB. Right. Now, had the Olympics, I'm not sure what the, the financial arrangements are for these brands at the moment, whether there is some kind of uh, postponement in terms of their financial commitment. But if that had gone ahead, even behind closed doors, those are two sponsorships where, given the current uh, lockdown situation, across most of the world, they wouldn't have been able to benefit from it. No one can travel, no one can sell their house. So their opportunity therefore, in 12 months time, is to use this sponsorship or partnership to show how they and their customers can come out of this situation in a positive way. Airbnb and the other associated travel brands can look to rebuild rebuild the friendly skies, rebuild travel. Um, you know, is it something that we're all going to be desperate to do more of now that we've experienced this three months of fairly close quarters confinement? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And with Purple Bricks, those economic shocks are going to be felt for a significantly longer period of time. What's Purple Bricks going to be able to do for its customers to say, you've weathered a really difficult period last year. That may have altered your plans for the next 12 to 18 months, but there was a reason you wanted to move home. Yes. What can we do to help when the position you're in now is not necessarily as favorable as the position you were in just before all this happened? It's an interesting point you make though, that it may offer more of an opportunity because the Purple Bricks and the Airbnbs, had this gone ahead, would have been marketing into a vacuum. And what I mean by that is they would have effectively been selling into a space where no purchases could be made. Tolerance, that won't be the case. So it may, the delay, have played out better for those brands than had it gone ahead in the first place. Oh, almost certainly. I mean, there are plenty examples of brands doing a fantastic job of pivoting on a dime right now. Um, they're really turning around. So if you look at Tesco, for example, it put out an execution in one day around the idea of staying at home, shopping intelligently and shopping infrequently. You know, thought about as a strategy, conceived, storyboarded, filmed, the whole thing in one day. Now, there are a lot of brands out there right now who for various reasons are, don't have the luxury of repeating this event or an event that they're running in 12 months. So instead of going, well, we dodged a bullet by not having to do it just now, they have to stick to their timetable somehow. So there's a great deal of creative thinking out there about how can we change our message? How can we still stay relevant to our consumers when they are not going to be actually consuming much from us necessarily for the next three months? There are some who are changing their ad campaigns like Coca-Cola, making it much less uh, salesy and much more supportive. People can still of course buy Coca-Cola in this period. Um, but there are other brands, for example, B2B brands, who are having to work out how to turn a lot of their events digital um, or virtual. 
So for example, we've seen in the ad industry, a huge range of um, events have been canceled, Adweek, Can Lions, all of those. But B2B companies still need to generate leads. And in fact, B2B services are some of the things that are being pressed into action a great deal at the moment. So they're having to think of ways, how do we get companies on board? How do we create events that we do virtually? How do we change our messaging? And so there are a lot of brains right now thinking very fast. There's a lot of thinking on their feet going on. The thinking's quick and the output is, is remarkably quick, isn't it? As you say, the change in TV advertising campaigns for not just Tesco, but there's another supermarket that I saw, um, Lidl, has been pretty, pretty impressive in how quickly they've turned uh, those, those around. Um, do you think that do you think that the necessity is becoming a mother of invention in the marketing space at the moment? I think it's brought home to a lot of people who burble on about we're customer first, we're creating customer experience. This has really put what does the customer actually need right now, really front and center, and I think it's created a real distinction in the marketplace. Um, particularly in areas like brand purpose, where so many brands quack on about their brand purpose and you're really seeing, you know, customers voting with their feet or stating their intention to vote with their feet against companies that have not behaved particularly well in the run-up to this event. I'm talking about employee layoffs where they weren't necessary because government support was available, um, things like that. So I think... What this really brings home, and the creativity, yes, it, it's the mother of invention, et cetera, as you say, but I think really by going, actually, what is a customer focus is what's really able to help them think quickly. I think it's given them a great deal of clarity of thought. Interesting. Uh, just away from, the, away from the sort of virus pivoting for Japan and otherwise for a second, there are some interesting sort of evergreen uh, themes in the Japan piece, which, I, which really struck me. Uh, this idea of parasitic marketing, again, uh, you know, those who wish to be parasitic on Japan, uh, uh, Tokyo 2020, uh, now have another 12 months to work out how to be parasitic on um, uh, Tokyo 2020. And when she's writing about that, Lucy Handley, who's our editor at large of Catalyst, um, what, does she, what does she mean by parasitic marketing, Maura? So... There's a difference between parasitic marketing and ambush marketing. Right. Um, ambush marketing is where you have a number of stooges sent into a highly sponsored event, such as a, a UEFA football final. Forgive me of my lack of knowledge of football, but, you know, a big, <laughs> a big final. And, you know, they'll, they'll get ambush marketing agencies to send in a bunch of, you know, well-paid stooges who then all simultaneously crack open giant cans of Pepsi when the main sponsor is Coca-Cola in the hope that when the, the um, cameras pan across, they will pick up this huge lump of people all drinking Pepsi and cocking a snoot to Coca-Cola. Um, that garners uh, column inches, it garners social media uh, noise, and you could question how valuable that is. Uh, parasitic marketing, even though the word parasite doesn't seem overly positive, is not designed to undermine necessarily the main sponsor or, or drag attention away. It's being able to capture 
the enthusiasm and the atmosphere. And what Lucy writes about is the fact that Nike um, created a series of ad campaigns based around the enthusiasm and sporting uh, ideals that were created for the London 2012 Olympics, when in fact Adidas was actually the official sponsor. Um, right. But Nike just created something along the philosophy of the Olympics and still managed to garner a lot of uh, positive vibe and brand engagement, but it wasn't attempting to say we might be involved with the Olympics, we might not. They weren't trying to cheat the customer. They were just piggybacking on the atmosphere. And I think that, that you've got to say is allowed. That's, that's picking up the brand values. It's picking up on the zeitgeist, but it's not overtly trying to go, Adidas, we're going to do everything we can do to undermine your official and expensive deal. It was, it was tapping into the enthusiasm, the greater enthusiasm found in the public for sport and uh, exercise that came uh, during that uh, wonderful uh, 2012 games in, in London, wasn't it? Rather than being uh, uh, trying to, uh, as you say, in some some way have an oblique push at Adidas, which was the which was the main sponsor. Well, I think it's one of those things. If you think about parasitic marketing, is actually a really unfortunate term, because when you think about ambush marketing, that's sabotage. Yes. Parasitic marketing actually has the potential to support, because if you look at a holistic zeitgeist moment if you look at it holistically um the more you all support this wave the more engaging that wave becomes so the more you're engaging the whole customer base to want to put on its sneakers to want to put on its lycra and its athleisure wear and get out maybe have a shuffle around the block or you know just just wearing it's good enough um the more people buy across the brands you're expanding the market for all you're not trying to nick bits of the market of somebody else. Talking of changing trends and, 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 and predictive trends, there's this fantastic uh, piece uh, in the magazine about direct delivery, yes, which, we're seeing, which we're seeing an enormous uh, amount of now. It was, it was remarkably prescient, uh, uh, although not in the ways that anyone could ever have predicted. Um, this really is an interesting shift to marketers, isn't it? This brand loyalty to people who send you very clearly defined brands direct to your door. I think it's very interesting because we tend to think of direct consumer. It's, again, we think this has been around forever, but you know the, the Amazon next day delivery, it's not, it's not as long in the tooth as we would think. We're just so very quickly used to it that we now expect it. But it's it's very anti-brand, really, because you can get whatever you would like, all still comes in this brown box. It's obviously branded once it's inside, but it's just a multiple, it's a service. But creating that connection between brands who can deliver you that brand feeling you, when you've ordered it and you know it's coming for you, it's that direct relationship with that brand, it's coming for you, it's going to come beautifully packaged probably, it's going to solve a problem. I think there's a great deal of scope for that niche of direct consumers, the one-to-one, -one, the one brand to the one consumer delivery service. And we are seeing it pick up. There are loads of big FMCGs involved who have the might and potentially the logistics network to deal with it. We had Dollar Shave Club, which was a small brand bought up by Unilever, now in itself a massive brand. But you still have the tiny brands surviving quite happily on this scale. We have things like Wellbeing Brewing, which is mentioned in the in the article, which is low alcohol or alcohol-free drinks. And that is 
to nobody's mind, a major brand like Diageo, for example, with its multiple brands, but they're still finding ways of getting that delivery done and developing that direct relationship, which if you think about it might be even better for them in terms of brand loyalty than just being on shelf in the local grocery store. Oh, undoubtedly, because they're, they're, not, they're not immediately sat there next to their, their, their competitors. But how do you build one of these successful brands when you haven't got the gigantic advertising budgets of the Diageos? Well, I think it comes down to, you know, thinking local, thinking, you know, working global. This, again, this scenario has created a lot of opportunity for anyone who wants to get into that D2C right now, let me tell you. Um, there are things on social media where consumers are actively pursuing local brands who can deliver to them and that they can support. Um, so again, I think, I hate to keep banging on about the situation we're in, but this is one where there really is the chance to find that opportunity to create that local connection, then that word of mouth. I mean, for example, I saw something on Twitter today about an app that looks to aggregate all the pubs and restaurants that are now offering takeaway. And right. clearly a lot of people with, who are financially able are very keen to support their local restaurants and make sure that they can keep them going during this time by ordering out from them, something they would normally not have the logistical infrastructure to deal with. Now this app, a bit like your Just Eat that exists already for takeaway, is aiming to do that on pubs and restaurants. And it was on Twitter, which you know anyone from Alabama to Aberdeen could look at, but I clicked on it and I live 40 miles outside London, and I was slightly disappointed going, oh, it feels like a national app, but it does actually only relate to bars and restaurants in certain areas of London. But do you know what? Given an amount of time, and yes. given the fact that we're all getting used to this idea, and at the moment it's a bit hokey, it's a bit, you know, using your neighbour to drive around to the local pub and they leave it outside and they come and bring it to you. It really yes. is on a one-to-one -one basis. But that somebody has put this really glossy, app that clearly has the back-end support to support a nationwide service should they be able to link up the logistics that sort of thing could grow really quickly it should scale pretty quickly and, and, and interestingly on the on that scalability point uh, some of that scaling one would expect to remain after uh, after the lockdown because there will always be a, a, a side market for for takeaways from restaurants if they are available. I mean, we're already seeing, you know, before this, any of this kicked off, the success of, uh, you know, the Uber Eats and all of these uh, uh, guys, which is effectively getting uh, deliveries from bricks and mortar um, restaurants and, and pubs. So you would expect some of that uh, new, um, new service to remain uh, and create activity in the economy after the lockdown has finished. Absolutely. And, you know, when we're seeing I was thinking, should I use an example of a very local to me uh, wine merchant who yeah. we are, my, my local area is trying to support through this time because, you know, drinking wine is a public service right now. Um, <laughs> but, but then you think, actually... Well, they are essential retailers, by the way. Off-license <laughs> are, have been categorised as essential retailers. They are indeed. They are indeed sterilisation from the inside out. Yeah. Um, but it's also the fact that I was thinking, you know, bless them, they are five miles down the road. I, I want to make sure that's, that's within their delivery radius. But actually, you know, Amazon, an, a giant like Amazon, which has its own logistics, makes it look like it would be difficult for anyone else to join in. But of course, what Amazon has created is a consumer culture of ordering in, of everything. And it's also therefore created a huge 
logistics network for everyone to feed off. So there are multiple delivery options. There are multiple uh, merchandise hubs where much smaller enterprises can still reach a very, very wide range. And of course, one would hope that if they can then expand their reach, they expand their brand, they expand their brand, they're going to have to expand their business. And way we've got the next Amazon. My, um, my local um, wine shop, which is a very good wine shop, and the, 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 the owner is passionate about wine, um, he, you know, spends a lot of his time over in overseas finding wines from France and Italy and further afield and so on and so forth. And you get a really interesting selection there. And he's never been busier. Um, he, uh, people are realizing that the way to get goods is to go local. As you say, um, a lot of uh, local shops are uh, building their brand locally because people who would normally have just chucked in uh, various goods, whatever they be, whether it be wine or anything else, when they were doing their weekly shop in Sainsbury's or Tesco's or Waitrose, now think, well, hang on, shall I, um, I'm going to get it quicker and more painlessly if I go and talk to my local um, independent. Um, well, that's the thing. They'll get that, but they'll also get the added value, those relationship building tools that brands are always looking for, where whether it's the wine merchant, the nutritionist, the local food producer, the local furniture creator, of the insider knowledge, of the advice. So this, even going to the supermarkets, which in themselves are the corona hotspots, and we want to get in and out as quickly as possible. We've waited in a queue to get our shopping. We need to get the essentials, make sure we don't forget anything. We're not in the mindset to browse or experiment. But when we're at home with little else to do, we're exploring different options. We're going, well, I wonder if I could try this. And if someone is going to make it easy to get it right to your very door, inexpensively and quickly, well, yes, I think it is time I started trying a new varietal of grape or look mm. at the surroundings in my house and go, I could really do with a, some kind of interior design inspiration because the magnolia is driving me potty. And now is the, now is the time for our experts. And now, our, is the, now is the time for experts on a micro scale as well as on a global healthcare scale. Yes, I think we need to just be doing with a lot of experts right now everywhere. You, you, you use your local wine shop when you realise that the guy who runs the local wine shop is passionate about wine and knows what he's talking about and is able to recommend you wines. Whereas if you go to a big supermarket and you're doing glorified guesswork, you might know a little bit about wine, but you don't know as much as the guy who runs the wine shop there's a chance that a lot of that market is never going back of course and the one thing that stopped most of us doing that beforehand was convenience versus inconvenience yes. well that barrier is gone and consumerist inertia you do what you did last week and now we can't do what we did last week, so we better look for something else to do. There's some sunlight, I think, from this uh, this uh, lockdown. Talking of sunlight, Australia is a favourite overseas market for Catalyst magazine, and there's a really interesting feature in this issue of Catalyst about a change um, in uh, the way that Australia is seeing itself and the way that translates into its marketing narratives. And there's this fabulous device at the front end of this feature about the ute. That's right, yes. The ute is the ultimate symbol of Australian macho blokishness, isn't it? Yes. It is hugely rugged. It's, you know, you can picture it in your mind's eye with it bouncing along, dusty, dry, 
multiple thousand mile farm ranges with a, a sun wizened bloke behind the wheel and absolutely nothing is going to get under his leather skin, both metaphorical and physical. Um, and then Mercedes wanted to get into the ute market. And I think this was born of the fact that Mercedes itself recognizes that it's, it's not a natural brand that you would associate with ute. You know, Mercedes is silver executive car. I know they've got a huge range, but it, it, to my mind anyway, my, my focus group of one, it's a, it's a silver sleek city slicker car. Yeah, and this is a slightly rusted, big utilitarian. That's what Ute means, utility vehicle. And so they th they clearly thought, you know, we can't just shoulder barge our way into a market that's already established that has its brand perceptions there. There was a need for a more creative approach and a creative way of envisioning what it means to be this Australian macho guy. And I think the way they've done it through storytelling this is a whole feature on narrative marketing but on establishing a new narrative about what it means to be an Australian man yeah um, and I thought what was particularly interesting and what might they're doing well but what might make continue to make this a very successful way of them entering into the market is they're not going in to tell the market that it's wrong that the 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 Australian male should be something else now. We're modern, we're all metrosexual, you should be something different. The messaging is very much, yeah, the Australian man is tough. He works against the elements, he's a strong guy. But what does it mean, what else does it mean to be tough? And they have this set of uh, conversations between admittedly tough looking dudes you know henry henry rollins is the celebrity they've got involved in in doing these um short conversations and he is you know i i, I wouldn't like to go up against him in a bar fight frankly um he's your archetypal strong guy but the conversations they're having are about you know what does it mean to be male what does it mean to, what's what's the mental mental toll what having conversations about mental fragility and being open etc and I think it was that ability to address two aspects of what it means to be tough, mentally tough and physically tough, and not negating either of them, not pushing one forward at the expense of the other. And then you can translate that back down to the brand going, yeah, Mercedes is slick. It's got a ton of German engineering behind it. It's got style. It's got designers working on the tiniest curve well into the night but it can still cope with the Australian outback and thundering across a sheep ranch and not rusting and falling apart the moment it's asked to do something difficult. Yes, it's interesting. I find it a very charming uh, piece and very interesting to read that way of reframing it without, as you say, throwing out the, 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 the old image while introducing a new image. Like the Australians in their ute, we found a new way of demonstrating our toughness, the whole industry has, um, amid this virus lockdown. But it does seem to me that medium term to long term, there are going to be some benefits the sector takes out of it. Oh, indubitably. I mean, look, we can't sugarcoat it. It's a really tough time for everyone, for businesses, for individuals, for society as a whole. But I think if we are able to look into our vast reserves of resilience yeah. and creativity yeah. and our ability to innovate 
then I think that will reveal a whole host of opportunities that can come from an otherwise fairly bleak period. Morag, thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Ben. CIM. Okay.